I have the opportunity now to focus on one specific aspect of the internal energy market. So in the following, I will be speaking about electricity and I will be speaking about the electricity wholesale market. I've been asked to speak about an electricity market design at last, question mark, and I emphasize the question mark. And as you'll see from my presentation, this isn't the only question mark in my presentation. So if I think back maybe two or three years ago, uh, I would have been of the opinion that we were quickly converging on an integrated European electricity market. We'd been dealing with a, a lot of obstacles to cross-border trades, so interconnectors were being reinforced. Certainly, in Central Western Europe, we were integrating the trading of energy and the use of interconnectors by creating what is known as a market coupling regime, where in an integrated manner we decide over the use of interconnectors and the use of power stations. So then about two years ago, a new development arose and um, for various reasons, a number of governments and member states decided that the product that should be traded in the electricity market should no longer only be energy, megawatt hours, but that there should be separate and mandated remuneration of capacity. And from what seemed to converge on an integrated market, um, we actually moved into a very um, fragmented picture. And this picture indicates what different member states are doing in terms of remunerating and rewarding capacity. And by the differences in colors alone, you already realize that this doesn't look like a very integrated market. So we had some old school measures like capacity payments. Generators received a payment for capacity just for the fact that they were there. These were regimes used in the Iberian Peninsula uh, and in Italy um, until recently or in Ireland. Then we had other schemes which initially emerged in Scandinavia, which said that we'll, we'll put some capacity in reserve and we'll pay that capacity some extra money. But these units which are under, under these contracts for some extra reward, they're no longer allowed to participate in the electricity wholesale market, in the megawatt hour market. Um, and this is known, uh, this is what became known as the strategic reserve. But then we also had other mechanisms where it was mandated that the whole market should be covered by capacity payments, but two alternative approaches to that. One is a central entity that tenders capacity contracts to the whole of the market, and um, beneficiaries have to bid to receive one of those contracts or an alternative approach which was developed in France to say we impose an obligation on retailers to contract capacity and make capacity payments. We don't tell the retailers exactly how they do it. We only say you have to show us that you have these contracts and we then leave it to the retailers to decide how they um, contract this capacity. And this has led to this fragmented picture which I am showing here. So the question that now arises is, is that leading us away from the integrated market? 
And indeed, the European Commission um, became, became quite uh, nervous about these mechanisms. And um, so they decided to look at this from a state aid perspective. State aid is quite interesting because um, state aid legislation applies to any industry in Europe. Um, since a few years ago, we have specific guidelines for the application of state aid in the energy sector. And the, and the logic and, and the link to our discussion here is that these capacity payments lead to either direct payments between governments or, or government entities to generators, or it, le it leads to payments that wouldn't arise in a market and which only arise because a capacity market is being mandated by the authorities. So the Commission started looking at this um, based on the principles of um, state aid. And Indeed, there are currently two processes ongoing in the EU, and luckily we have a few stakeholders also in the audience who are involved in this process. So the first process is known as the sector inquiry. The second process is known as the blueprint process. Um, and I'll just explain the distinctions between the two. So the sector inquiry is led by DG Comp, so the Competition Directorate, and it looks at um, whether regimes that exist should have been notified to the European Commission under state aid legislation. And it looks at whether those schemes which are being used, whether they're actually compliant with state aid legislation. And DG Comp will be looking at, well, is there actually a need for a capacity mechanism in the first instance? Is it proportional? So is the degree of intervention proportional to whatever the problem is that is trying to be addressed? And also, are these regimes non-discriminatory? And I'll come on to non-discrimination in a minute. The conclusion of this may be that the Commission decides that certain regimes should have been notified, um, and it may decide that certain regimes are not entirely compliant and therefore may need to be adapted. Um, we've, we've seen a draft consultation out um, this week. The process will obviously um, continue, but this is a process which is in full swing. And for those who are interested, they obviously have the opportunity to participate and to uh, contribute in that process. The alternative process is known as the blueprint process, and this process is being led by uh, DG Energy. Uh, and this has a slightly different focus. This is um, looking more at whether state aid legislation and the application of state aid legislation is enough to create uh, an integrated and internal energy market, or whether further legislation may be required to ensure that we develop and um, we evolve into a harmonized and functional market. And things that DG Energy is looking at is, for example, a framework for establishing generation adequacy, so a way of identifying whether we have a capacity problem or not in the first instance. It's looking at the design of um, capacity remuneration mechanisms with a view to possibly coming up with a blueprint or several blueprints, hence um, the title of blueprints. And it's specifically also looking at ensuring international participation in national capacity 
remuneration mechanisms. Um, the result from this process could be a new legal initiative. So this could evolve into a new network code, which may then be turned, for example, into a regulation which would then be directly applicable in all member states. Um, the idea by DGN is to come up with a proposal at the end of this year. Um, so let's just look at some of the emerging thinking which you may be able to read from the consultation document that I mentioned, but also from conversations and, and uh, consultations that happen at the EU level, but also at uh, national level. Um, as I already hinted, there, there seems to be three areas of interest. So one area of interest is that of the adequacy assessment. So identifying approaches and means to establishing whether or not we in, in Europe or individual countries have a capacity issue. It is looking at national capacity remuneration mechanisms and it's looking at how players from other countries can participate in these mechanisms. Now, how is this linked to state aid legislation? This is what I try to indicate through the um, light blue boxes at the top. So the, the principles of state aid uh, legislation are, are quite clear. I've, I've written them out at the top. And I think they immediately relate to the different areas of discussion that we see in this debate. So first of all, state aid can be granted, can be provided if it relates to an issue of common interest like security of supply, generation adequacy, and there is a need to be addressed. So whether or not there is a capacity issue um, or a security of supply issue is an important aspect of, of that discussion and that investigation. Further principles are appropriateness, incentives, proportionality, appropriateness means that whatever measure is taken actually addresses the issue that has been identified. Incentive means that whenever state aid is granted, it needs to trigger some reaction which wouldn't have arisen had the state aid not been there. So you cannot pay people money for things they would have been doing anyway under state aid legislation. And it needs to be proportional. So the amount of money paid needs to be the minimum required to achieve the response that you're looking at. And overall, all of this needs to make sure that um, we avoid distortions to competition. So just briefly skipping through these, these three areas, what is actually meant. So the emerging thinking here is that um, if you want to introduce a capacity mechanism, you need to show through an adequacy assessment that you, your country, faces a problem. There is then a discussion around whether there should be a common European approach to this. Um, so maybe an approach which is managed, operated, or designed by NSOE. So here we're already moving into the governance discussion. Um, possibly there should even be a common modeling. So maybe there should only be one model on one computer or one server that does the calculations for all regions in Europe to establish whether there is an adequacy issue or not. Um, so then you may ask, well, what about subsidiarity? Well, there, there can still be aspects of subsidiarity in this. So for example, each member state may then be able to decide how much security of supply, what level of adequacy it likes, but it may need 
to decide so with, within a given framework uh, and possibly even a given modeling framework. Then moving, moving on to the next pillar, the national capacity remuneration mechanism. Here the, the emerging principle is that whatever measure is taken needs to focus and address the cause of the issue. Um, further thinking is that before any significant measures are taken and, and to remain proportional, um, you should try and exploit all reform possibilities that ex exist within what's known as the energy only market. So specifically balancing arrangements need to be sharp, may need to be sharpened and tightened. There needs to be a competitive design. So when capacity payments are granted, this may need to come, for example, through an auction mechanism. And these mechanisms need to be non-discriminatory. So you can't say, I'll only make this payment to gas stations, but not to coal stations, or only to coal stations, but not to renewables or some other technology. And lastly, and, and the further complication is then the cross-border participation, on which I think there's now a good framework for discussion, but it's obviously quite complex to integrate this um, with the already complex discussion around national mechanisms. So questions here are, who participates in these mechanisms? Is it interconnectors or is it generators or is it both? Can it be only one or the other? Um, does there need to be proof that interconnectors are available and that you as a participant actually have a right to use that interconnector on which you're claiming you're supplying your capacity to the other country? Um, for this assessment, do interconnectors need to be derated? So can you only claim to be able to use part of an interconnector that exists? Uh, and for practical purposes, should there maybe be some transitional exemptions so that those countries who like to use capacity mechanisms get those up and running fairly early on while they're still working on arrangements for cross-border participation? So this is just um, some of the Im emerging thinking. Um, so as I, as I emphasized, an important starting point is to identify a need, so an adequacy issue, and also to identify and, and to clarify that this issue cannot be addressed by uh, existing market forces alone. So important aspect is to identify um, a cause. And in, in the political debate, we see a number of causes um, or reasons or, or justifications for capacity mechanisms, but not all of them uh, really serve to justify capacity mechanisms under state aid legislation. So some say, well, because the market is evolving and, and certain things have happened that people didn't anticipate, uh, this creates issues for generators. Um, well, that may be the case, um, but, but that is just what you expect in any competitive market, that the market doesn't always develop in the way that you hope and you predict. And this alone is, is no justification for capacity mechanisms. There may be a further issue of political intervention in the market. For example, some argue that they've been taken by surprise by the level and degree of renewable promotion. Um, Again, you can question whether that's a 
justification for capacity mechanism. You, you might be arguing for some stranded cost recovery mechanism if, if truly the national government had in some way misled national players about what it was doing on the renewables front. But again, no immediate justification for a capacity mechanism. And then we move into the area where um, there may be justifications for capacity mechanisms. These, these justifications, they've actually emerged and have been developed in, in international debate and international literature, not just in Europe, but also in, in the US, and therefore the, the link to the FERC that was um, mentioned by uh, Director Ristori here is quite interesting. So broadly speaking, four arguments which, which have been, which can be used. One argument is that security of supply is a public good. So no individual consumer or no individual generator may be prepared to care for the security of supply because everyone may think, well, there, there's someone in the background who will take care in the end and, and I don't need to, um, to take care. This is a highly disputed um, argument, highly controversial argument. And we would actually say that there are certain reforms um, that you can undertake, for example, tightening, sharpening the balancing mechanism, which actually puts responsibility on generators and on users to keep in balance. And this is supportive of, um, uh, of, of maintaining capacity. So this indicates that not all of these justifications may be used to justify a capacity mechanism. There may be other simpler mechanisms to achieve something. Further arguments have been a prohibitive price risk, um, a missing money problem due to regulation or the threat of regulation or intervention of governments in the case of uh, peaking electricity prices, um, which might be a, a justifiable um, argument, and also possible inconsistencies between national uh, capacity mechanisms which may lead to implications for other countries. So, for example, France introducing a capacity mechanism may have implications for Belgium or the Netherlands or Germany or other countries. And it may create a domino effect that because a capacity mechanism in one country distorts the playing field, other countries may be tempted to introduce capacity mechanisms as well. Um, it is the precise reason of, of this threat of um, losing the the level playing field um, that the Commission is actually intervening with its sector inquiry into capacity mechanisms. Um, so Im important then is that if you adopt the capacity mechanism that the capacity mechanism addresses the issue that you have identified and um, this chart is just indicating that there are a number of tools if you want to pursue with capacity mechanisms. Um, they have different features and they serve different objectives. So what we've drawn in, uh, in this map here is on, on the one axis, the question of whether the mechanism is decided centrally or decentrally. So centrally is on the right. Um, there's a central agent deciding on how much capacity is contracted. Or towards the left, decentral players like retailers decide on how much capacity they contract. And then from top to bottom, whether the scope of this capacity mechanism is all-encompassing towards the bottom, or whether it only relates to a fraction of capacity, like in the strategic reserve used in some of the Scandinavian countries. Um, and if you look at it from this perspective, you can already realize that different tools, different mechanisms can serve different objectives. So, for example, the strategic reserve um, clearly has a, a transitional function 
So it's something that happens well outside the normal energy market. It only covers some of the capacity. It's a mechanism which is temporary and which can easily be removed. Um, so this is a mechanism used by countries um, who principally have trust in the energy-only markets, but they have a, a, a slight degree of, of uncertainty and they want to keep some reserve in the background. Um, whereas the more far-reaching mechanisms, they serve more to address fundamentally perceived issues in the market. So then a remaining question in this is, so as, assume each, each individual country adopts a capacity mechanism which addresses its national issue and let's assume that mechanism was also compliant with the broad principles of state aid legislation, we may still arrive at the very patchy map that I showed at the start of my presentation, which raises the question, which DG Enna is currently looking at, whether that is sensible. So there could actually be a common interest which goes beyond the existing state aid legislation to to say, well, come on, let, let's, let's try and harmonize our mechanisms and let's try and work in a common direction. And this is what's trying to be addressed by the blueprint process. So finally, leading on to governance and what does this imply for governance, here's a, a quick attempt, uh, and we call it a straw man, of how this debate may evolve into a governance arrangement for the electricity market. And this is by no means the final word. We, we call it the straw man because we want to emphasize that this should just be a focal point for discussion. So we have these three pillars which I showed earlier. We have the adequacy assessments, we have the capacity remuneration mechanism, and we have the issue of cross-border participation. And we have various of the known stakeholders. So we have the European uh, Commission in, in the guise or in the shape of DG Enna. We have it in the shape of DG Comp. That's the second line. We have ACER. We have national member states. And for example, we have NSOE. And we could continue with a long list of, of other stakeholders. And let's just look at what the roles of this, these different players might be in, in this future world. Um, so, for example, what may emerge out of the blueprint process is that um, DG Enna or A regulation requires that there's a, a common, common criteria and a common framework for assessing generation as adequacy, whether it's achieved, whether it's under threat. Um, the implementation and, and the detailed development of that approach could rest, for example, with NSOE. So that would be an approach which would be um, quite similar and consistent with an approach which has been adopted for other network codes. ACER may have a word in approving whatever um, NSOE comes up with as a suggestion. And individual member states may have the option to set their national um, adequacy targets, but taking account of generally agreed principles, generally agreed framework. So that's for the adequacy assessment. Then looking at um, 
national mechanisms and also cross-border participation. And here you see already that the boxes go across. So in, in, in the final stage, we really see uh, the introduction of national mechanisms and cross-border participation uh, part of an integral model. Um, so, for example, DG Enna may define one or several blueprint models, several blueprint models to address distinct issues. Uh, it, it may then happen that these um, get converted into network codes, regulations, and so on. Um, a question that may then arise is that if, if we have this tighter framework of state aid legislation, what role remains for DGCOM? So should DGCOM still... Um, still need to authorize any individual capacity remuneration uh, mechanisms, or would there be some sort of what's known as, as a block exemption, uh, that once you're compliant with the model and the network code, you may no longer need specific approval. Um, the role of member states would obviously be um, to develop their mechanisms and to notify them um, to the commission and to demonstrate that in the first instance there is an adequacy concern. Um, I, I think the roles both of ASA and NSOE would be less clear in, in this world. I think there's a wider discussion around the role of NSOE at any rate, because the, the role is, is slightly odd as, an, um, as, an, as a trade body for TSOs on the one hand, but on the other hand a, a sort of technical regulator, and, and so there may be certain changes there anyway. So um, I, I think the role of NSOE would, would need to be thought through quite carefully. And, and equally, uh, it, it's not immediately clear what exactly the role of ASA in this um, would be, because um, I suppose the, the issues to deal with here are, are less um, issues between countries. The issues are more um, between um, the, the Commission and individual member states. And, and again, it's a question of, of the wider governance arrangements, uh, what exactly the role of ASA would be in this. Um, so this brings me to the conclusion, and I hope it also leads into the following discussion. Thank you.